in your Bibles again to the passage that Brother Blake has read for us. In a few moments, we will be looking at verses 28 through 44. All along, I have been saying that Mark's gospel is a fast-paced, compressed, flyover, docudrama of the life, miracles, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all in only 16 chapters. The record begins with his baptism. It continues with his temptation in the wilderness. His announcement of the kingdom, the calling of his disciples, the performing of miracles, the teaching of the people, and suddenly we find ourselves in the last week of his life already by chapter 11. In fact, this morning, we are going to be seeing what transpired on Tuesday of that week. Those of you who have been a part of this exposition know that the Lord Jesus was assaulted, I think that's a fair word, by three different groups of people uh, who confronted him with antagonistic questions, hoping to discredit him in the eyes of the people, hoping to minimize his popularity. But he answered all of those questions wonderfully in a way that they could not respond to. This morning, we come to a fourth and fifth question asked on that same day. But what we will find is that the fourth question was a kinder, more genuine, more sincere question. It was asked by an individual. And the fifth question was asked by our Savior himself. So we have the fourth question coming from this individual in verses 28 through 34. That is both the question and the answer. And I want us to consider that. We've just read it, so I don't need to reread it, but I do want to say a word about the person who was asking the question. I've already said that he was kinder. We're told by Mark and by the other gospel writers that he was a scribe. We're also told by Matthew that he was a Pharisee. But it is obvious by his response to Christ's answer that this scribe had much more spiritual understanding by far, by far, than the average scribe. His individual affirmation of the Lord Jesus' answer, which we'll see in just a few moments, proves that. But what about the question? What really was the question? Well, the question was, you see it, which is the commandment of most importance there in verse 28. But I think that the scribe had in mind something a little more than we might assume. Scribes were famous for discussing the law of God and all of the laws that they had added. And they were always debating sort of philosophically about which laws were the most important. Uh, Were moral laws more important than ceremonial laws, or were the ceremonial laws most important? Were there any laws that somehow epitomized the whole of it? 
And so it is in the spirit of that question that the scribe comes. It's sort of a Lord Jesus, well, not Lord Jesus, Jesus. Which commandment is the weightiest? Which commandment is more comprehensive than any other commandment, if there is such a thing? That was the heart of his question. And the answer was found there in verse 29 and following. And as Blake reminded us, Jesus was quoting from the Shema. The Shema came to be very familiar to pious Jews. In fact, for a few centuries just before the arrival of Jesus on the scene, every pious Jew quoted the Shema. We might pronounce it Shema, but the Hebrew is Shema. Twice a day, every morning and every evening, the pious Jew would quote this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. One difference, and we should observe it, the Lord Jesus added with all your mind. And he has the right to add that because he was the giver of the law to begin with. He is superior to the law. He is the lawgiver. And so he adds that dimension for us. And he quickly answers a question that really wasn't raised. The scribe got more for his money than he bargained for. He asked for the one commandment, and Jesus, in essence, said, I cannot give you the one commandment. I must give you the two because they are inseparable. And if you want to think of them together as the one commandment, that's fine, but they must not be separated. The second greatest commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there he was quoting from Leviticus 19.18. And then Jesus adds these words. There is no other commandment greater than these. So in a sense, he groups them together too and speaks of them as one commandment. So that's the beginning of our Lord's answer. But now I want you to think with me for a few moments about the significance of that answer. You see that it is two-dimensional. There is a vertical dimension toward God and there is a horizontal dimension toward our fellow man. And that's why we speak of the two tables of the law of God. There were two tables and we assume that there were two, especially to visualize these two dimensions, the vertical and the horizontal. But they're inseparable. And there is a priority. And the priority of order is first vertical, then horizontal. Because no one can truly love his neighbor as himself who does not love God. Nor can anyone prove their love to God without loving their neighbor. It's impossible. These two must go together. I'll save you the effort and the time, but I want you just to listen to the words of the Apostle John who makes this real clear. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command that we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. See the inseparability of these two commandments. 
see the priority of them. First love for God, then love for our neighbor. Now, God requires of us, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, more than anything else, as foundational to everything else, the supreme affection of our entire humanity. That is the fundamental demand of God. Supreme affection for Him flowing from the entirety of our humanity. That's the first thing He requires. We fell into sin and it affected the entirety of our humanity. His redemption was designed to reach the entirety of our humanity. And His standard requires nothing less than loving Him with the entirety of our humanity. What am I talking about? Talking about heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants us to love Him with a complete, thorough, and perpetual love that flows toward Him out of everything that makes us who we are, our entire humanity. Should we be surprised? Would you expect less from the true and the living God than to require that we love Him with every part of our being? Could the true and living God ever be satisfied to say, you may love me with portions of your humanity which I have created, but it's not necessary that you love me with the entirety. We can't even imagine that. But not only are we to love Him with all that we are, we are to love Him perfectly in all of those things. We are to love Him with all of our heart all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. That is the law. That is the command. That is the requirement. And as impossible as that may seem to us, and it is in one sense this side of perfection, we must not forget that this is a commandment. As you sit here this morning, as I stand before you, all of us, are obligated by God's command to love Him with every part of our being and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And who is our neighbor? Well, he's more than what the Old Testament believer was required to love. It was his fellow Israelite. That passage that I mentioned makes that clear. Jesus comes along and tells us through his parable of the compassionate Samaritan that our neighbor is our fellow human being and all those who are in need of our compassion. And so again, I emphasize that Christ put these two things together, these two commandments. They must not be separated. And in doing so, he delivered us from two things. He delivered us from what you could call mysticism, and he delivered us from humanism. And what do I mean by that? Well, if all we are to do is love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, we might just sort of plunge ourselves into a realm of just subjective feelings and emotions and, and mystery about loving God. We, could, we would be hard-pressed to define it, we would be hard-pressed to demonstrate it. It's just a heart thing. It's just a mystical thing. No, there is a mystical element. 
There is a subjective element, but it's more, more than mysticism. But if, on the other hand, our only duty was to love our neighbor as ourselves, we would very easily fall into a humanism, which is prevalent today. I'm just to love my fellow man in, in acts and deeds of compassion. And if you focus on that, and you forget about your vertical dimension to God, you fall into humanism. And the Lord Jesus put these two together. God put them together, really, in the original giving of the Ten Commandments, and our Savior summarizes them so that we will not fall into those two errors of mysticism and humanism. And in that sense, there are only two commandments. So you perhaps notice the title of the sermon on the bulletin. What if there were only two commandments? The answer, there are. Because in these two commandments, loving God with the entirety of our humanity will enable us to keep all of the other vertical commands that He gives us concerning our relationship to Him. It will enable us to keep the first four commandments. And loving our neighbor the way we love ourselves will inform us as to how we keep the last six commandments. And these two commandments together will inform us and guide us with regard to all of our moral responsibilities revealed in the whole of the Bible toward God and toward one another. So really and truly, there is, there are only two commandments that we are to keep. And so this is the substance of our Savior's answer to the scribe. Now, I want you to notice very quickly how the scribe responded. Surprisingly, you should be surprised. We should all be surprised the first time we read this because this is, this is getting to be a long and tedious day for Jesus. He's already had to deal with the smart aleck questions, the ill-motivated questions of the Sanhedrin, then of the, uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and then of the Sadducees, and now comes a scribe. But we find, we find, the Lord knew immediately because he could see into the scribe's heart. But this is a different kind of person. Look how he responds to our Savior's answer in verse 32. The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. Uh, the scribe added that, but that's true. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. Now notice, he adds something that shows he had a deeper understanding than the average scribe, by far a deeper understanding. He adds this, to love our neighbor as ourselves is much more, and of course to love God with all of our hearts, put the two together, they must not be separated, this vertical love toward God, horizontal love toward fellow man, says this scribe, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Try to find a scribe somewhere in the Bible believing that. Try to find a Pharisee who sees the spirituality of God's law. Try to find a scribe or a Pharisee who believes that obedience to God and loving you with all of our heart and loving our neighbor is more important than offering sacrifices, especially burnt sacrifices. Burnt offerings, in a sense, were the most holy of all because they were offered directly to God. And he says, even burnt offerings pale in relative insignificance compared to loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. We should be surprised, happily surprised. Wow, where'd this guy come from? Where did he get that kind of understanding? 
and we should be encouraged with him, even as our Savior gave him encouragement. You see, this, this man must have come to understand, surely with the help of God, some of those passages in the Old Testament which really emphasize the fact that God is more interested in our hearts than our hands. He's more interested in our motives than our deeds. How many times has God said things like this? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? How many times do we hear things like this found in Hosea 6.6? For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This scribe had some grasp of that truth. And so when he expressed it, the Savior encouraged him. But please note, encouragement is guarded. And in fact, I would suggest to you that our Lord's compliment, if you can call it such, carried with it a warning. What did Jesus say to him? Verse 34 tells us, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Which is another way of saying you are near the kingdom of God. He never said that to the scribes in general. He never said that to the Pharisees. He never said that to the Sadducees. But this man was near to the kingdom. But he wasn't in the kingdom. And so in a sense, wasn't Jesus saying to him, Very good, very good. I'm glad you understand that. Your understanding of that puts you closer to the kingdom than most people. In fact, you're near to the kingdom. But guess what? You're not in it. You're not in it. And so I come immediately to two applications with regard to this first uh, section this morning, which is question number four, right? Question number four. A friendly question. Two observations. Number one, while it is encouraging to be near to the kingdom, it is not adequate. This scribe desperately needed to follow the logic of his theology further. What if he had really taken time to think, okay, the greatest commandment is to love God with the entirety of my being. And to love my neighbor the way I love myself. How do I stand with regard to that commandment? Am I doing pretty good? He didn't say try to. He didn't say love God with most of your heart. Most of it. He said all. What am I going to do? I must be a sinner. I'm disobeying this commandment. I need mercy. He didn't follow it through. And I want to say to all of us, it is never enough to be convicted. It is never enough to have knowledge alone. Unless our knowledge of God's Word leads Him to Him and enables us to find entrance into His kingdom. This man needed to sue for mercy. He should have said to Jesus, 
we should say to Jesus, then what can I do? What is my hope? And we would surely find the answer in the gospel. So, in essence, Jesus is saying, near is still outside. You're either in or you're out. Okay, let's come to the fifth question. Enough about that. So much more could be said and perhaps ought to be said. Fifth fifth question. And I've already told you who asked this one. But before I point you to the question, would you just notice the end of verse 34? It says, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Um, Wouldn't it have been, fun is a cheap word, exciting to have been with Jesus and his disciples that whole day? Just kind of, there you are in the temple uh, on the porch perhaps, and these, the Sanhedrin comes, or at least representatives, and they think they've got him, and he stymies them. And he's saying, go, Jesus, go. And then come along the Herodians and the Pharisees, and they've got a tax question. They think it's going to put him in a moral, philosophical, political dim- dilemma. Are we supposed to support an ungodly government or what? what? How do you, they want to put him in a bad place? He utterly confounds them. And then come the Sadducees with their trick question about the resurrection. And he says, you're so foolish. You're so mistaken. You're so wrong. In essence, he says, you're so ignorant. You're ignorant of the Scriptures and you're ignorant of the power of God. You think that in heaven and on the renewed earth, life is going to continue just as it has here. No, no, there isn't going to be marriage in the eternal state. There won't be death anymore. There won't be need for procreation anymore. God has the power to make wonderful the life of the renewed earth. And God has the power to raise the dead. You don't understand the Scriptures. You don't understand the power of God. You don't even understand that God is the God of the living, not the dead. And his present relationship with the patriarchs implies that not only will their bodies be raised, but will all the faithful be raised. And they're sitting there <laughs> with their jaws dropped. They're embarrassed. They're, they don't know what to do. And then comes a nicer kind of man and asks a reasonable question. But now we read, no one asks him any more questions. Do you wonder why? I mean, if you came with an ill-motivated question, would you be uh, willing to be the next guy that looks like a fool? I don't think so. so. So Jesus, in a sense, has defeated his foes. If you want to think of it as a competition, it's like he's been on the defense, but now he goes on the offense. And he says, I know you're done, but I'm not. You've been asking me questions. I have a question for you. Uh, It's about the Christ. You're very interested in the Christ. You're great students of the prophetic passages of the Old Testament, which tell us about his coming. My question for you is very simple. How can David, in Psalm 110, verse 1, they knew it well, They knew it very well. And by the way, Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament. No other passage is quoted as many times as this. 
And just for those of you who take interest in these little things, 37 times, 37 times, the New Testament makes reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. And the question is really quite simple. He says, you all know that according to the Old Testament, um, David was going to have an offspring and the Messiah was going to come from him. But he says, my question is this. Why did David call his offspring Lord? Lord? <laughs> your descendant is, is going to be your Lord? What's that about? The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, David speaking prophetically, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies my footstool. He didn't say, the Lord said to me, sit until I make your enemies your footstool. God said to God, sit here until I make all your enemies your footstool. They all knew that Psalm 110 verse 1 was prophetic of the Messiah. And David's just, I mean, Jesus asked a simple question. Why did he call him Lord? I thought he was just his descendant. And you see, what Jesus is doing is he's revealing to the scribes his true identity. This is what he's been doing all along. This is what he did from the moment he announced his kingdom and demonstrated his sovereignty again and again and again. And we just heard last week him tell the parable about how at last the owner of the orchard, the owner of the vineyard sends his own beloved son and so forth. He's revealing himself by degrees. He's getting very bold. This is his last week. No more messianic secret. The secret's out. It's, it's being broadcasted. And then Jesus is saying in many ways, I am that king. I am that Messiah. I am that son. And here's your problem. You men think that the coming Messiah is only going to be the son of David. He is going to be the descendant of David. I don't argue with that. There are many prophecies that speak of David. And if we had time, I would take you to the most important one of all, which is Second Samuel uh, chapter <clears throat> 7, verses 12 and following. Please don't go there now, but it, it's very clear. God says to David, I'm going to raise out of your seed a coming king whose throne will be established forever. They all knew that that was the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, I understand why you believe that the Messiah will be David's son. But I have a question. How can he be both David's son and David's Lord? There's only one answer. He's got to be divine and human. Divine and human. Human and divine. Have you put that into your Christology? In essence, Jesus is asking. Does your Christology lead you to look for a coming Messiah that is both man and God? No, because they didn't want. They didn't feel they needed a divine Messiah. They just needed a Messiah who was blessed by God. We need a great leader who will come someday and be all that the Old Testament prophesied that he would be so that we can throw off this Roman yoke, 
so that we can be free, so we can be the greatest nation on the face of the earth again. That's what we want. That's what we need. And their, their scope, their vision was so low, they were looking for an earthly Messiah who would give political deliverance to the nation. They were not looking as this man who had just heard how much he should be loving God for somebody who can go down deeper. They didn't see that they had the need for a Messiah who could do more than throw off a foreign government's yoke. And Jesus is revealing who he is and who the Messiah is going to be. And I could take you to so many wonderful passages that would be helpful in in proving that to you, but I think I should not in the interest of time So I'm just going to say that's that's how he deals with his own question. Now, what I want to do is to quickly take us to the last two sections of this chapter. There are two more things, and we have to go quickly. He's gone on the offensive. He's asserted his deity. And they're beginning to see what he's saying about himself. And, of course, they don't like it. I don't know. You know, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, I, I believe I should show us one thing. And I, I took a tiny bit of encouragement by saying it's 1134. Let me just make this brief excursion that I wanted to make, thought I shouldn't make, now decide I should make, Okay. I want you to go with me to the passage in 2 Samuel 12, and then we're going to run very quickly to Acts. Go with me to 2 Samuel 7 to see how clearly. And I'm going to show you. The reason why I want to do this is because I think it will help us with something that um, we talk about at the Midwest Center for Theological Studies, namely hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just a technical name for of the science of biblical interpretation. And the reason why people conclude wrong things about God and theology is because they apply wrong principles of interpretation. And here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, listen to what God says to David, He shall build a house for my name, this, this coming one. I'm going to raise up from your offspring. Well, verse 12, I'm sorry, I started the verse 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He didn't say immediately after you. He said after you. Who shall come from your body. That is, he'll be actually a physical descendant. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the, the throne of his kingdom forever. Look at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Did God keep that promise? Yes. Where is the descendant of King David now? Well, the right answer is at the right hand of God the Father, ruling over the second Israel. I really appreciated in Pastor Rich's prayer this morning 
the reminder that we have a second Adam. And I just want to remind you again that we have a second a lot of things. I've already told you, Christ is the second Moses. Christ is the second David. There is a second Israel. It's a spiritual nation made up of Jews and Gentiles. There is a second temple. It's not physical, it's spiritual. There is a second Jerusalem. There is a second Adam. And so, here is this promise to David. Now, we can just look for a, an, a hyper-literal uh, fulfillment of it and, and wonder why it hasn't happened yet. Or we can go to Acts chapter 2 and we can listen to an inspired apostle by the name of Peter tell us the true meaning of that passage. All through the Old Testament, in many places, this coming Messiah is actually called David. Those are the passages I will not turn you to. It's like long after David was dead and buried, God said, I'm going to raise up David again. Have you ever met anybody that literally believes that King David, literally King David, the old King David, is going to be raised again? I? Are there some people that believe that too? Okay. They belong to a real small category of nuts. <laughs> Most most don't believe that, but they, but they're trying to be consistent. But it's so obvious that the physical David was designed to become a type and symbol of the final, perfect, greater David who was to come. And passages like the one I'm showing you right now prove it. Look, verse um, 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of his death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. And he goes on to Quote, some prophecies concerning the resurrection. Now look at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Sound familiar? Yeah, Second Samuel 7, verse 12 and 13. Being a prophet, verse 30, notice verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Now, does that sound to you like a spiritual interpretation and application of 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13? It better, because it is. Peter is saying... All along, what God had in mind was the second David. And I'm, I'm just sharing this with you for a moment. Now we got to go because if you take Old Testament prophecies and you insist upon interpreting every one of them literally and physically, you get into all kinds of problems 
that the New Testament doesn't want you to get into because the inspired authors of the New Testament help us to see that those prophecies in many regards, yes, they did have an original physical fulfillment, but were designed to have a greater spiritual fulfillment. And this is what Jesus is saying to the scribes. David called the coming Messiah his Lord because it refers to a divine person who's going to come down and redeem his people, die, be buried, rise again, and ascend to a throne to the very right hand of God. And even this moment, he is making the enemies of Christ his footstool. And we're a part of that kingdom. So please, please appreciate that biblical principle of interpretation. We're not just trying to spiritualize whatever we can spiritualize in the Bible. We don't dare to do that. But let us not fear seeing a spiritual fulfillment where the New Testament makes it clear. That's my simple point. Okay, now I'm going to go really fast. The third thing we have is this, what I'm going to call the scathing rebuke of the scribes. <coughs> excuse me. Found in verses 35, uh, excuse me, verses 38 through verse 40. Scathing rebuke. Begins with a warning. Beware. Beware of the scribes. What's the problem with the scribes? They're hypocrites. They're people manipulators. They're arrogant. Of all the people on the face of the earth who should be humble and in hot pursuit of salvation and mercy, it should be the scribes because they spend their whole time in the law. And if you spend your time in God's law and the Holy Spirit gives you any insight, I promise you, I promise you, you cannot be proud. You cannot be arrogant. You will fight against your hypocrisy. So it's an irony, isn't it, that these students of the law, professional students of the law, have to be uh, described the way Jesus describes them. What is it they like? What do they like? Well, they like long robes. They like greetings. They like the best seats. They like places of honor. And they like money coming from poor widows whom they can take advantage of. That's what they like. That's what Jesus says. They wear long robes during the week, which really are supposed to be designed for temple service, but they like to go to the marketplaces because they wear these long, beautiful robes. There was a, ooh, that's a rabbi. And everybody had to stand up and greet the rabbi, except people that were common workers. You all had to stand up and greet the rabbi. They loved the greetings. And they loved the best seats in the synagogue. And they loved the places of honor at banquets. And they loved money and they knew how to get it especially in capitalizing on poor needy vulnerable widows I don't think it would be too far-fetched to imagine some Pharisees getting together and saying you're not going to believe what happened last week when I visited so-and-so what what happened well I got into one of those real long prayers you know and I prayed for 23 minutes straight and I prayed for her, and I could tell that she was just being caught up. And when I was done, I said, things are looking pretty pretty difficult right now for me. I'm wondering if there's any way you could just help me out with the love offering. And they probably laughed and laughed and laughed how they took advantage. That's what Jesus said. Now, if we had time today, and I almost had Blake do this, but then I decided not to do this. I would take you to Matthew 23 because it's the parallel account of his rebuke of the, of the scribes. 
It's the same, it's the same account, but you know what he does there? Listen to this. No less than six times he says to the Pharisees, he says to them. Here he's just saying, beware of them, and this is what they're like. But in Matthew 23, we're told that he actually spoke to them. And you know what he said? Six times. He said, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Six times he told them, woe to you. One time he called them, he said this, woe to you, blind guides. One time he said, you blind men. And one time he said, you serpents, you brood of vipers. In one setting. This is the same Tuesday coming toward its end. Who's on the defense now? It was a scathing rebuke of the scribes and really of the Pharisees. And we see in it boldness and we see authority. And if we have eyes to see, we see there's a king here. He's asserting his kingdom. Who dares to do that? Who has the right to do that? They said, how do you have the right to come in here and do these things in this temple? Who do you think you are? In essence, his answer was the son of the owner of the vineyard. I am the king. His sobering and fearful prophecy of judgment must have fallen on um, distressed ears. Look at, look at the last words in verse uh, 40. They, they, these kinds of people, these scribes, will receive the greater condemnation. Any application here for us? Oh, yes. What we have to do, and maybe this will surprise you, but I hope it won't. We have to look for the scribe in us. Have you ever heard a sermon that sort of asked you to look for the Pharisee within you? Sure. And hopefully you were convicted and said, you know what? There is a lot of Pharisee in me. This scribe was a Pharisee, so in a sense I don't have to distinguish between scribes and Pharisees. But just now I'm asking you, have you looked lately for the scribe within you, the scribe who is described the way Jesus just described him. What is it about the, the scribes? Well, they're, they're hypocritical. I find, and I tell you this by way of honest confession, that re- remaining sin in me makes me more like a scribe than I care to acknowledge. And the reason is because I don't love the Lord my God with all of my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. And I'm too busy falling in love with myself. And because I love myself so much, I still want too much honor. I still crave comforts. I still want prestige. And I still find myself manipulating people's thinking. Do you have any acquaintance with that? Or am I just the exception to the rule, a pastor who acknowledges that I do struggle with that? There's plenty of scribe in me. Is there any scribe in you? Do you ever find yourself being hypocritical? Then we need to hear our Lord's rebuke and say, well, thank you, God, that you've delivered me, that I'm not a scribe in the sense of being unconverted, and I'm largely and wonderfully delivered from my formal scribal life. But, oh, God, I have to confess to you that there's still some scribe in me. I am too much like them. Deliver me. Help me. Finally, we have in verses 41 through 44 
what, what I could call the, uh, the widow's two cents worth. Um, you know the story. Blake read it for us. But what I want you to observe is how it comes immediately on the heels of this scathing rebuke of the scribes. In fact, it comes immediately on the heels of being reminded that what some scribes do is they devour widows' houses. And then suddenly we see a widow. And we can't help but feel the contrast between what the scribes do and what she does. What is she doing? Jesus sits down and he watches. And what he sees, he knows to be instructive. And he calls his disciples and says, fellows, come here. I want you to see something. I want you to learn something. Look at this. Look, look what's happening. That woman right there, she's obviously poor. She's a widow. Do you know what she just put in the, in the treasury box? That's ridiculous. <laughs> she put in two leptas in the Greek. It, it was the smallest copper coin in use in Palestine. It would be like our pennies. Don't you sometimes wonder when we won't use pennies anymore because they're so seemingly insignificant. Three cents? What's three cents? You get back change from a nickel? Are you kidding me? That's a, that's a small penny. Technically, literally, a lepta was 132nd of a day's wages. A day's wages. Well, she put in two, so that's 64. One sixty-fourth of a day's wages. Go figure how much that is. But here's the thing. It was all she had. It was her whole living. She didn't have any more money. She had two coins. I'm sure that if I had any of an inclination like she had, I would have only put in one of them. I would have kept one left for myself. No, she gives it all. And when you look at the value of it, it's insignificant. How is this going to help the temple? If people gave like that, there's no way it's going to be maintained. But you see, this is the point. When God looks at what you guys put, and I put in that offering plate, my wife puts it in for me. Number one, he sees exactly what's written on your check, okay? How did Jesus know how much she put in? Would he go over and say, hey, ma'am, what, uh, what are you putting in? Let me see. Oh, I see. Yeah, two, two coins. Yeah, okay. No, he's sitting over here. He's looking over there, but he has omniscience. And he calls his disciples and says, fellas, I'll tell you what she gave. He knows what we give. And here's the point. What does he, what does he praise her for? He, he draws a contest between her and the rich people that are putting in lots of money. Lots of money. He says, you know, you know what? Proportionately, she gave far, far more than they gave. Because they gave out of their abundance. It's easy to give out of your abundance. Because you don't feel it. You don't feel it. It doesn't make any qualitative difference in your life. It doesn't affect what you're going to do next week, how infrequently you may go out to eat. It doesn't affect that. But in the deceitfulness of our own hearts, and here we are, scribe-like, we think, you know, really, the aggregate of what I gave was pretty good. Pretty good. If everybody gave that amount, Come to a pretty good sum of money. And Jesus says, don't look at it like that. Don't ever look at your giving like that. Look at your giving in terms of how much you have left after you gave. I'm still filthy rich. I didn't even feel it. 
then, then you really weren't liberal toward God at all. And this is what he's having his disciples think about. She gave out of her poverty. They gave out of their abundance. And I have to ask myself, and I'm asking you this morning, when you give, do you give out of your abundance? Probably the honest answer for most of us is yes, and I'm, I always give out of my abundance because I always have an abundance. And I'm not saying that Jesus is teaching here, give so much that you become poor like this widow. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that God looks at our hearts, and He knows if we love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And He knows if our hearts are in the kingdom. And He knows if we wish we could give more. And He knows whether or not we ever sit down with our spouses and say, Honey, what do you think? Are we okay now? Are, are, we, are we squared away with all the bills? Do we have a reasonable savings for emergency fund? That's good. That's fine. The horse is prepared for the day of the... But we're so quick to define what reasonable is, and reasonable really isn't reasonable often. We just want to think of it as reasonable. How often do we sit down and say, let's try to live, let's try to live on the edge? Do we dare to live on the edge? Just once. Just try it. Let's just try it. What can we do? We've got to do more. We want to do more. We've got to help more people get to the mission field. We've got to help build this building out here so that when visitors like you, precious friends who came today, don't feel awkward about where, where, are, they, where are we going to sit? This place looks like it's full. Do we really give sacrificially? I can't take time to take you to Second Corinthians 8. You know about the Macedonians. They gave out of their poverty. And they couldn't afford to give to that offering in Jerusalem. But they came to Paul and said, Paul, please let us have a part in that. Please, we want it. He says, you can't afford it. You're poor. And their attitude is, but we still want to do it. We want to give beyond our ability. All I'm asking, and believe me, I'm asking myself, do we have hearts like that? Honestly? Honestly? It would appear, if I may be so candid, that many in our church are not even tithing. That's what the Old Testament saint, under a far less blessed covenant, gave. We should be given way, way beyond that. And what we give is an indication of how deeply we love God and love his cause. It just really, I think, requires us to ask some some tough questions. Like, why are we here? What, what, what is this about, this thing called life? God created us, saved us. For what? Is this world my home, or am I just passing through? Why does the Bible call God's people pilgrims? Why does he call them sojourners? What's this stuff about Abraham looking for a city? The architect and the builder whose foundations was God. What's this stuff about all these people looking for a better country? 
Does my life show that kind of a faith, that kind of giving? Mine doesn't. Hope yours does. I think that we need to get just deeply obsessed with the kingdom of God. But let me put it this way. Let me put it this way because I've got to quit. I want to try to tie this together. Can you tie this kind of stuff together? People ask me, a couple of friends, a couple of guys ask me, have you found a unifying theme? And I said, I think I have. You know what I think the unifying theme is? And I had some amazing quotes, but I'm not going to give them to you because it's too late. I'm going to tell you what I think the unifying theme is. Let me put it this way. I sat down and I wrote it. This is what I wrote. Our inability to obey the two greatest commandments shows us our desperate need of a Savior who is not merely the Son of Man and human, but who is also the Son of God, divine, who can actually save us from our sins and enable us to genuinely and increasingly, though not perfectly, love God with our whole person and love our neighbor as ourselves. Such love for God and our neighbor delivers us progressively from the addictive praise of men, hypocrisy, and exploitation of others, and it gives us an ever-increasing desire to sacrificially give God our everything. Was that artificial? I don't think it is. I think that's what this passage is about. If we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves, and we try to, we're going to say, I am in some kind of deep, deep, deep trouble. Because I don't love God that way. What am I going to do with my sins? I need a Savior who's not just a man, but God, who can make a perfect atonement for that sin and change me on the inside so that I desire to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I know I'm not going to do that this side of heaven, but I want to desire it because if I don't desire it, then I haven't been changed. I'm just a typical scribe. I need that kind of a Savior. I need one who's more than the son of David. He's got to also be the Son of God. We have such a Savior, and when we come to Him, He so radically changes us that we don't want to live like scribes. We want to live like that widow. We love God so much that we want to give Him our everything. I'm a long way from that, dear people, but I want to get there, and I hope you want to be there too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, you're a wonderful Savior. We know you're God. We know that you weren't just a wise, wise, wise rabbi. You were the Son of God in flesh, demonstrating that you were also the Messiah to come. Oh, Lord Thank you for your atonement. Thank you for your perfect righteousness. We confess to you corporately and and perhaps individually that uh, we're guilty. We're very, very guilty of not loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and surely not loving our neighbor as ourselves. Help us. Forgive us. Be our Savior. Change us. And deliver us from every tendency to be hypocritical. 
loving the praise of men, but may we rather love you so much that we're willing to give you our all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.